Hello and welcome to the Samungo's podcast. This is episode 75 and today's topic is pulmonary hypertension with Sarah Krieger. Now this is a two-part lecture. You'll hear the first part on this episode, but you can watch both parts at continualist.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Now I got Sarah on a call uh, to give her top five pearls. She just returned from a conference and we were discussing some of the people she was speaking alongside, including Rich Levitan. Now Rich is the reason Continuous exists. He's probably the world's authority on emergency airway management and he gives an entire course on Continuous. Five and a half hours of lectures and practical tutorials on everything you would want to know about emergency airway management. It is amazing. So go to Continuous.com and search for Rich R-I-C-H and you'll find it there. I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so hello, Sarah Krieger, and welcome to the St. Mungo's podcast. Hello, it's lovely to be here. So Sarah, you have very kindly joined me today. We're about to play one of your wonderful talks from the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine. You very kindly uh, joined us today just to give us your top five pearls of wisdom for emergency clinicians. Just before you do that, Sarah, would you mind for the benefit of our listeners just giving us a little background to you, who you are, what your professional background is and where you are in the world? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Sarah Kreger. Uh, I am an emergency physician and intensivist at UCLA. I first trained in emergency medicine at UCLA, and then I did critical care at Stanford. And now I mainly work in the ICU. And I'm in Los Angeles because the weather spoiled me to move anywhere else. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm stuck here forever, including the high cost of living. Fantastic. And I should say that you are a passionate educator. And we will just at the end of the the podcast, we'll give a link uh, to your wonderful uh, work that you have uh, online. But look, we're about to play that talk, as I said, just before we do that, would you mind you very kindly put together your top five pearls of wisdom for emergency clinicians? So I'm very excited to hear these. Over to you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So I think that my number one pearl is something that I learned first in emergency medicine, but then it really came home to me when I started being an intensivist and was on the other end of sort of admissions and consults. And so number one is in the ED, your time is a zero sum game. So if you spend more time with patient A, by definition, you spend less time with patient B, but that doesn't mean that patient A and patient B need the same amount of time. I think the way to really maximize, I've discovered at least my time, is to identify what are the things that I'm going to miss that actually matter. Because the thing is, if I, you know, I'm admitting a patient to medicine and they're like, oh, they have a tubular necrosis. Did you not notice that? And I'm like, they have an ATN. Okay, whatever. I don't care. Uh, That just doesn't matter. I'm like, they're in renal failure. I'm admitting them. I don't care why they have casts on their UA. I don't care. It doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. But there are some big misses that matter in the emergency department. And I think learning how to really identify when those misses are going to be and that those patients are just more complicated and they take time and saying, I'm going to focus my time, my zero-sum game, precious, precious time on those patients. That's number one. And the other four pearls are, in fact, for me, the misses that really matter when I see the patients that what we did in the emergency department makes the difference in the patient's course between them, you know, walking out of the hospital in two days and them having a month-long ICU course. So pearl number two then is 
lactate does not necessarily mean sepsis. Now, I feel like we've been taught to think this by all of the guidelines and everything that we see a lactate, we immediately treat the patient for sepsis. But lactate doesn't mean that the patient necessarily has sepsis. It just is telling you that the patient is probably in shock for some reason. You don't know why. It could be septic shock. It could be cardiogenic shock. You don't know. So don't see lactate and think, sepsis, I must give a 30 cc per kilo fluid bolus because if they're in cardiogenic shock, that's actually going to hurt your patient. That brings me to pearl number three, which is shock is not about hypotension. Shock is about hypoperfusion. And often, especially in our super sick patients and the patients who have a lot of physiologic reserve, they come in and they're in profound shock, but their blood pressure may be okay. Why? Because shock is also a state of physiologic stress. The perfect example of this is the trauma patient, the young, previously healthy trauma patient. They come in, they're a critical trauma, but their initial blood pressure will be like 150 over 100. Why? Because they have an endogenous catecholdrip that's going crazy and it's masking their true hypotension. And that's not true of just blood loss, trauma. It's true of almost any kind of shock. And especially if the patient is in severe distress, that physiologic stress can mask their true underlying hypotension. And so a patient who comes in, the blood pressure initially looks okay, but, you know, they have evidence of hypoperfusion. That patient is in shock. Treat them accordingly. Pearl number next, pearl number four. I call it the dyspnea masquerade. So patient comes in. They say they can't breathe. We look at them. They're tachypnic, and they say they can't breathe, and we're like, okay, you can't breathe. You must have a lung problem. And if they're in enough distress, we often just go straight to intubation and ask questions later because we often think that's the safe, conservative thing to do is patient really looks like they're in distress and they say they can't breathe, just intubate and, you know, call it a day. But remember, dyspnea could mean that they have a lung problem, but patients often will come in with a profound subjective sensation of dyspnea, not just when they have a lung problem. There's two other really important things that cause that sensation that'll also cause the patient to look like they're in severe distress. The first is metabolic acidosis. Think about it. When you have a patient in DKA, they don't come in and say, hello, I'm in DKA. I mean, that would be nice, but they don't do that. What do they do? They usually say, I can't breathe. Why? Because that metabolic acidosis is driving this subjective sense of dyspnea. The second time the patients will come in like this is in shock because their body is telling them, you're not getting enough oxygen to the tissue. So the patient feels like they can't breathe. They're often in significant distress. They say they can't breathe. They're tachypnic. They look like they can't breathe. Sometimes the O2 sat is not reading well because they're hypoperfusing. So we're like, ah, and they're hypoxemic. But they're in shock. And the issue is that if you take a patient who's complaining of dyspnea and saying they can't breathe, but it's because they have a metabolic acidosis or because they're in shock and you take that patient and you go immediately to intubation, they often crash and burn. And that brings me to pearl number five, which is the physiologically difficult intubation is actually more common and I would argue sometimes more dangerous in the anatomically difficult intubation. 
So we spend all our time when we talk about intubation and emergency medicine, talking about the anatomically difficult intubation. We, I mean, think about how many hours of training you've had about this, about, you know, what to do with a difficult airway, if they have anaphylaxis, if it's edematous, let's learn about a crike. In comparison, how many hours do we spend learning about how to intubate the patient who is hemodynamically unstable? Or what do you do with peri-intubation hypotension? And if you actually look at the numbers, especially these days with all the fancy airway tips and tricks and training, the frequency of the truly anatomically difficult intubation that we truly can't get the tube into the right hole is actually not that high anymore. But the frequency of patients getting profoundly hypotensive coding, crashing and burning peri-intubation, I mean, think about it. When was the last time that happened to you? They got hypotensive peri-intubation versus the last time that you had an angioedema, right? And so we should be planning just as carefully, if not more carefully, for the physiologically difficult intubation than the anatomically difficult intubation. And so don't forget about that. Have pressers ready, plan for it, know it's going to happen when you get there. Brilliant. So my pearls. Fantastic, Sarah. They are wonderful pearls. So let's just jump right into your lecture. Hey, everybody. My name is Sarah Krager. I am an emergency and critical care physician at UCLA. We are talking about pulmonary hypertension and RV failure. Now, this is one of my favorite topics, but I appreciate it may not be your favorite topic. So I feel obliged to start this lecture by telling you why you care about RV failure. I think the reason most people think they don't care about RV failure is that they think it's super rare. I mean, they think that like, okay, I'll just cross my fingers and hope I'm not the person on the day with that guy with the remodulin pump walks into the ED, and as long as that's not me, I can just forget about it the rest of the year. Turns out uh, it's more common than you would think. So sepsis. RV dysfunction actually seems to be quite important in sepsis. And when was the last time you walked into the hospital without seeing at least one septic patient? Not in recent memory, right? So there's a decent amount of literature on this, but this most recent study was specifically looking at patients who were septic within their first 24 hours of ICU admission. And what they found was that almost half of those patients had RV dysfunction. More importantly, that RV dysfunction was associated with significantly increased mortality. Interestingly, LV dysfunction was not. ARDS, we've all seen a little bit of that the last couple of years, no? So RV dysfunction also plays a significant role in ARDS. Depending what study you read, anywhere from 20 to 50% of patients with ARDS have RV dysfunction. And again, it appears to be strongly associated with mortality. Specifically looking at COVID, RV seems to be important as well. You know, I have seen more RV failure in the last couple years than I ever have before in my life. And apparently it's not just me. So apparently, at least in this meta-analysis, one out of five patients who were hospitalized for COVID were found to have RV dysfunction. And that RV dysfunction was actually clinically significant and again, associated with increased mortality. Massive PE. So this is when I think most of us think about RV dysfunction, is a patient comes in with a massive PE, their RV goes down, and then they fall apart. It's not as common as sepsis, not as common as ARDS, but it turns out it's still reasonably common, especially amongst hospitalized patients. If you look at unexpected inpatient deaths, massive PE is probably responsible for a majority of them. 
Now, if any of you people have ever tried to give TPA to a PE patient, you know it doesn't happen instantaneously. It takes a minute to make the diagnosis, get the TPA to bedside, get the TPA infusing, and then it's not like the TPA breaks down the clot instantaneously. And this is why it's relevant that the majority of deaths from massive PE occur in the first hour. Because you can be doing all the thrombolysis things, but you've got to keep your patient alive in the meantime. And if you want to do that, you got to know about RV failure. Now, the thing I like about RV failure is that, yes, it's super complicated. Yes, it's super high risk, high mortality, but it's rescuable. Unlike a lot of other high risk conditions like brain bleeds that we see, with RV failure, if you do your job right and you know what you're doing, you, a lot of the time, can get that patient to walk out of the hospital in the same condition they walked in. So hopefully I have now convinced you that you care about RV failure and RV physiology. So let's discuss. We're going to start talking about why is it that pulmonary hypertension is so much scarier than regular hypertension? I mean, every third patient that walks into the hospital has hypertension, right? And nobody's running around with their hair on fire because they have hypertension. It's not until we start talking about pulmonary hypertension that people start getting very anxious. Why is that? Why is it that pulmonary hypertension is so much worse than regular hypertension? The reason is the RV. It's the RV's fault. Why is that? Well, the RV is kind of a princess. It just is that way. And the RV being a princess combined with another piece of RV pathophysiology that's deeply unfortunate, which is RV pathophysiology is a bunch of vicious cycle building upon other vicious cycles, making it very difficult to rescue your patient from those vicious cycles once they get going. And so the combination of the RBM being a princess and the vicious cycle pathophysiology means that RV failure and pulmonary hypertension are actually much scarier than LV failure and systemic hypertension. So let's talk about all the ways in which the RV is a princess. Um, the first way is that the RV crumbles at the first sign of resistance. It just cannot handle pushback. Let's look at the response of the LV versus the RV in terms of their stroke volume in response to increased afterload. So let's take the LV first. Turns out the LV is pretty good with increased afterload. If you take afterload point A and you increase the afterload to point B, the LV can handle it. The stroke volume doesn't drop that much because the LV, it's robust. It's like, oh, give me some pushback. I got this. And so even significant increases in LV afterload don't actually translate into significant drops in LV stroke volume. Now let's look at how the RV, on the other hand, handles afterload. So let's do the same thing. Let's start with afterload point A, increase the afterload to afterload point B. Look what happens to the right ventricle. It just can't handle it. It drops its stroke volume precipitously because the right ventricle just cannot handle even small increases in afterload. And this is probably the most important part of RV physiology that you need to understand. Now keep in mind that when we're talking about RV afterload, we're talking about pulmonary artery pressure and the pulmonary vascular resistance, as opposed to when we're talking about LV afterload, we're talking about the mean arterial pressure and the systemic vascular resistance. Now this becomes important later when we start talking about what presser to use in RV failure. But let's first talk about, so 
RV afterload, bad thing. RV doesn't handle it well. But what are the things that cause increased RV afterload? And I like to think about them in two categories, obstructive and vasoconstrictive. The main thing, one of the most important things that causes obstructive physiology is thromboembolism, right? You have a big clot, it comes up the works, and there we have it, obstruction. Pulmonary arterial hypertension. This is another big one. So this is actually quite similar to the pathophysiology of systemic hypertension, of essential hypertension, where you basically get all of this vascular remodeling and vascular hypertrophy so that your pulmonary artery turns into this big hypertrophied mess that actually obstructs flow. Then we have lung diseases, so ARDS, interstitial lung disease, things on that spectrum. The reason they cause problems with the RV is that they take your nice lungs and turn them into bricks. Now the RV has to push blood through the bricks. That doesn't go so well. Vasoconstrictive etiologies. Inflammation is a big one. The pulmonary circulation doesn't love inflammation. And when it gets exposed to a lot of pro-inflammatory mediators, it constricts. It causes an increase in pulmonary vascular resistance. The biggest thing, however, that causes vasoconstriction in the pulmonary vasculature is hypoxemia by far. This is a very robust increase in pulmonary vascular resistance with hypoxemia. But in addition, hypercarbia and acidemia will also cause vasoconstriction and increase pulmonary vascular resistance. Now, you may have already noticed that these things, these two categories are not independent of each other, right? This in fact, is the first example of how this vicious cycle pathophysiology comes into play. Because, you know, as you can tell, all of these obstructive things can cause all of these vasoconstrictive things, and often, especially over the intermediate term, vice versa. But not only that, this sort of hypoxemia, hypercarbia, acidosis, vasoconstrictive physiology also turns out to be a vicious cycle, self-reinforcing. So this is how this looks. If you are looking at your oxygenation, and then looking at your pulmonary vascular resistance and how your pulmonary vascular resistance increases in response to dropping oxygenation, the relationship looks something like this. Now, what you'll notice is the most important thing about this curve is that it has an inflection point. What this inflection point is telling us is that you can drop your oxygen a ways without any consequences, but then after you hit this inflection point, any time after that, that your oxygenation drops further, it's associated with a very sharp increase in your pulmonary vascular resistance. Now, this is how that relationship looks at a pH of 7.3. But watch what happens if we start dropping the pH. Now what? So if it's 7.3, it took a PaO2 of 40 before your pulmonary vascular resistance went up. When we go to a pH of 7.2 or a pH of 7.1, what we find is that, you know, at a pH of 7.2, a PaO2 of 60 causes that increase to start happening. And at a pH of 7.1, a PaO2 of closer to 80 causes that increase to start happening. So the lower your pH, the less decrease in oxygenation you need to hit that inflection point. And you can see vicious cycle on vicious cycle. The other way that the RV is a princess that causes us problems is that the RV is a perfusion princess. So let's look at a simplified model of the heart. Now, the right and the left heart get perfused by the right and the left coronary arteries. Now the pressure in those coronary arteries is the same, right? We'll just call it 120 over 80 on a good day. 
Now, what is different between the perfusion of these two ventricles is not the coronary arteries. Those are the same. It is the perfusion pressure gradient. Why? Well, keep in mind, perfusion is not about a blood pressure. It's about a pressure gradient. And that is what is as different here. So let's start with the LV. The LV gets the vast majority of its perfusion during diastole. Why? Well, that's the only time that there's a gradient there taking place, because during systole, there's no gradient, there's no perfusion. But the LV is good with that. It's chill, it can handle it, because it's used to only getting perfused during diastole. Now let's look at what happens to the right ventricle. So the right ventricle also gets a decent chunk of perfusion during diastole. But during systole, on the other hand, in this case, it gets quite a bit of perfusion during systole because the normal systolic pressures in the right ventricle are low. And so there is a very robust pressure gradient right there. All of this means that unlike the left ventricle, the right ventricle is accustomed to getting perfused during the entire cardiac cycle. In fact, it feels entitled to get perfused during the entire cardiac cycle. And if you take away some of that perfusion, it gets very upset. Let's talk about etiologies of right ventricular failure. So I think a lot of people find RV failure quite intimidating. Um, in reality, we can use the same model that we use to think about LV failure and systemic hypotension and simply map it on to create an understanding of RV failure. So we're going to go with the model you guys all know, the pipes pump tank model to understand RV failure. And we're going to map this onto the three categories of acute decompensated right ventricular failure. The first one is pressure overload. That translates into a pipes problem. The second one is decreased contractility, which is a pump problem. And the third problem is volume overload, which is a tank problem. Now, in each of these categories, there's some major things that cause that category of decompensation. In our pressure overload category, we're talking about pulmonary arterial hypertension, massive PE, and then your lung diseases, ARDS and interstitial lung disease. Decreased contractility. Now we're talking about things like an RV infarct, an RV STEMI. We're talking about myocarditis, and we're talking about sepsis, probably sepsis-induced cardiomyopathy. When we're talking about volume overload, this is most frequently due to a patient who needs some diuresis, who maybe has chronic RV failure, pulmonary hypertension, and they just haven't been getting diuresed for whatever reason, or they're not getting fluid off, or excessive fluid administration. Because it turns out you can take anybody, you can take a perfectly normal RV, and if you go completely overboard and, I don't know, they have pancreatitis, and the next thing you know, 15 liters of fluid later, their RV is probably not doing so hot. And I actually think that the RV failure we see in sepsis is probably some combination of sepsis-induced cardiomyopathy with excessive fluid administration. I'm not going to get into the debate about how much fluid we should be giving patients with sepsis. That's a whole other lecture. But I do think there's an interaction there. Now let's take each one of these one at a time. Pressure overload. So this is probably the most serious and common cause of RV failure. Now, this is the most concerning thing, because remember, one of the core things about RV physiology is that it doesn't handle afterload well. It completely falls apart the minute you increase the afterload. Now, this is also where we encounter what I like to call a physiology epic fail. And what is this epic fail? Well, it has to do with fluid administration in RV failure. I was taught, and probably a lot of you were taught, that we're supposed to give fluids in RV failure, right? There's something, something preload dependent, something, something, so give fluids, right? 
No, wrong. It's not that simple. Let's talk about why. So if you have the RV and it's trying to like, you know, get some fluid into it and then it's trying to push that fluid out, everything's going great until, oh wait, we now have a pipes problem. We have some obstruction to fluid outflow. The question is, if we have a pipes problem, if our pipes are blocked, will it help us to add more fluid to the system? The answer is no, it will not. You can ask any plumber out there, if you have a clogged drain, should you just add more stuff and hope it'll just push things through? No, probably not. If the problem is the pipes are blocked, the solution is not to add more water because it's just going to back up and get you nowhere. The solution is to fix the blockade. Now, if you guys are more comfortable with medicine rather than plumbing, let's do another example. Let's take this patient right in front of us and let's ask what is the best first step in management of this patient? A, a large steak dinner, B, a milkshake, C, one dozen hot dogs, or D, make the patient NPO and place an NG tube. Obviously, right? We don't take patients with a bowel obstruction and say, oh yeah, yeah, we'll just like feed them a whole bunch of hamburgers and then that'll eventually just push everything through. No, that's not how this works. It makes no more sense to say, I have a patient with a massive PE with an obstruction, so I'm going to give him fluid to just sort of push everything through. That's not how this works. And not only that, it can cause a lot of harm. So that is the deal with pressure overload. Now let's talk about decreased contractility next, because I think that this is where a lot of the misconceptions and misunderstandings of the role of fluid in RV failure comes from. Decreased contractility. This is a pump problem. Our pump, it's ischemic, it's myocarditis, whatever it is, the pump is not pumping as hard as it needs to. Now, what's confusing about this is that if you have a pure pump problem, if your patient just had a massive RV STEMI and they're hypotensive, in this case, giving fluids is probably the right thing to do. Why? Why is that? Why is it that an inferior STEMI is different than a massive PE? Why should you give fluids to the inferior STEMI, but definitely not to the massive PE? What about the afterload? Is your RV afterload increased in an RV STEMI? No, it's not. Your RV afterload is fine. Your pulmonary pressures are totally fine. It's just the RV contractility that goes down. And so if you're in this situation when you're trying to get fluid out, but the massive PE is blockading your pipes, giving you fluid is not going to help you. On the other hand, if your RV afterload is normal and you just had an RV STEMI, so your pump function's not so hot, in that case, that case, this RV is preload dependent. In this case, the RV needs additional fluid to keep things moving, but it's all about what your RV afterload is. Let's talk about volume overload, because it turns out that it gets a little more complicated than even that. Volume overload, it's a tank problem, right? And you'll notice that when talking about RV failure, most of the time, we're talking about too much volume rather than too little volume. Now, we said if there's increased afterload, volume is a bad idea. If there's normal afterload, you may need it to help push things forward. But more often than not, even then, if you go too crazy with the volume, it's probably not doing any favors. So what's the issue? Like, what's the problem that you eventually run into volume with? Well, it's this. If you give the right amount of volume, great, fantastic, you improve the RV and you're preload dependent, you push some volume through, high five, call it a day, unless 
you maybe get a little overzealous after that. And you keep giving fluid and keep giving fluid until we start having a very specific problem, which is this thing we call interventricular dependence. What it means is that the RV and the LV live in the same house. They're separated by this kind of floppy septum thing, and they can only have so much volume in each one. Now, it's a zero-sum game, meaning the more volume we push into the RV, the point at which we push so much volume into it that we're forcing that septum over into the LV, then the LV is going to have less volume. Now, this is what we call a D-sign on ultrasound. This is where you're looking with ultrasound, you're looking in your peristernal short view, and you see that septal flattening. This is the thing that is going to tell you when you're going overboard giving too much volume. Because this RV, when we have a nice normal septum, the septum's supposed to be going into the RV, that's normal, this RV may be preload dependent. So we're going to give some volume. Sounds good, but then maybe we give a little more volume, maybe a little excessive volume, and the next thing we know, the septum is now flattening. That septum is now bowing into the LV. And look what happens to the LV. When that septum starts bowing into the LV, it's smooshing it and making it smaller. And so actually, what have you just done? You've actually decreased LV preload. So paradoxically, overloading that RV with volume that you were trying to give to improve preload, you have just paradoxically decreased LV preload. And the flag that that's what's happening, that you're doing that, is when you start seeing that septal flattening on ultrasound. So these are our three basic etiologies of RV failure. Pressure overload, our pipes problem, decreased contractility, our pumps problem, and volume overload, our tank problem. So Sarah, thank you very, very much for that amazing talk and the wonderful pearls of wisdom. Look, before we let you go, we always ask every guest, on St. Mungo's, the, the same uh, final question, if that's okay. And that is, if I could take you back on a time machine to meet your junior self, just leaving medical school about to start your career, given what you've gained now in your career so far, what one piece of advice would you give a junior Sarah Krieger just about to start her career? Yeah, so this is something that I was told uh, a very long time ago, and it just took me a little while to apply it to medicine. But if I could tell myself one thing or the thing that I found I have just sort of repeated to myself on the bad days, the hard days, or the just how do I continue to get better? It's this. Be humble, be curious, and be tenacious. And I think with that, you can get through and hopefully get your patients through most things. Love it. Well, look, Sarah, it's an absolute honor. I know uh, how busy you are and we are extremely grateful for your time. Before, actually, before we let you go, one final, final thing. Do you mind just telling our listeners where they can find more uh, of your wonderful work? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a FOMED website. It's icuedu.org. And you can also find the podcast under the same name. And it's basically just emergency medicine, resuscitation, critical care content. All the videos are on the website of the lectures. The audio versions are on the podcast. And then there's also some sort of supplemental infographics and other stuff on the website. And it's, it's all, all free. free. So, all free. All free. Amazing. Yep, absolutely. Amazing. It's wonderful what you do. Thank you so much for your, your time today, Sarah. Sarah, it's absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be here. So many, many thanks to Sarah for the wonderful pearls of wisdom and the wonderful talk. Remember, you can watch both parts of this pulmonary hypertension talk 
at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash Mungos and that'll be available for the next couple of weeks at least and don't forget the Rich Leviton Airway course Command the Airway which is absolutely fantastic until next time please take care